All right, Jonah chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Leading up to this place, and look, uh, I think, I think it's, it's easy to see the power of everything that happens in this story through chapter 3. And this is the part that they just don't, they will not put this in the children's books. Chapter 4 does not have the things that make for a good, like, pop-up book. The stuff that's here is challenging. You know, the stuff like the prophet of God saying, I, why don't you just let me die? The stuff like him saying, I care about the plant more than I care about people. There's miraculous and wild and amazing things that are at the heart of this text. But I hope the, the biggest thing that we would see today, more than just the progression of the story or a sequence of events, would be the reality of what God is like. When we began this series, we talked about the colloquial nature of Jonah. The fact that everybody knows the story of, of the man swallowed by the fish who comes out alive, right? Everybody knows that. Kids know that. You grow up hearing that. But ultimately, the players in this story, Jonah, the sailors, or the mariners that he's on the ship with, and these people in Nineveh, they only really reveal who the story is truly about. And the story is truly about God himself who pursues people. He radically pursues Jonah and comes after him. In doing so, he also comes after these sailors and demonstrates his goodness. And then he does so for these wicked, horrible, terrible, no good people in Nineveh as well. It's a powerful story, but if we just read this in a linear way, we just look at the words on the page and just kind of see these things as events that transpire and don't recognize who the story is about, we'll have missed it. Don't miss that this morning. This story, as chapter 4 concludes, is about the God who pursues, the God who is sovereign, the God who saves, the God who transforms through his word, and ultimately all of those things being bound up, wrapped up in his steadfast love. That's what Jonah's about, and we get to see the conclusion of this today. Let's read together. This is Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, and this is Jonah remarking on the repentance. What's happened in chapter 3 is, is the Ninevites have repented and turned from their evil, and this is what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for is it better for me to die, or it is rather better for me to die than to live? And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head. To save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. There's weird stuff here, man. Plants growing in, in, in a night, leaving in a night. I don't know any other scriptures that end with the word cattle. Like it just Cows is where we stop here. There's a lot of interesting things going on in this passage. What do these things mean? What's happening here? Let's start back at verse 1 and look at the picture of what's happening Jonah sent, ultimately, he was sent the first time to go preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is, is this is not just to like those are the other guys and we don't like them, okay? Nineveh is truly historically, and I think it's, I think it's the British uh, Museum in London that has probably the, the, the strongest collection of like Assyrian artifacts and things like this that can really detail the kind of gruesome uh, Things that people in Nineveh have done, but this was one of the most violent, aggressive, and quite frankly, just evil cultures and empires the world has ever known. So from the very beginning, God calls Jonah to go preach to them. He does not. In fact, he says, I'm going to go the other way, like 180 degrees the other way. To a different city. So he boards a boat and he goes. And God has pursued Jonah through this storm the entire time. Pursued him, redeemed him through the great fish. Spit him out on land. And now Jonah has just what we've seen transpire in chapter 3. Jonah has, has come out on the other side of this two or these two incredible experiences. And now he's preached with five short words. God has transformed the heart of the most evil nation in the world that they have essentially laid down their arms. They have, they have decided that they are not going to live in evil because they don't, want to, they don't want to experience the destruction that is coming for them. The king even says, look, if we'll, just, if we'll do this, maybe, just maybe, God will spare us. He will turn from his anger. He will relent this disaster. So this is where we find ourselves. Maybe the most powerful sermon ever preached. In so many ways, just dramatic effect. And yet Jonah describes his scenario in this way. He's angry. The words here of the text say, that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So English fails us a little bit here, but in the Hebrew, displeased, dissatisfaction really means this, kind of in a root way. It just gets to the heart of this, the, the most basic emotion. It means this. It means that it became evil to Jonah. 
So we read displeased and we think like, eh, he didn't love that. Didn't, it wasn't his favorite. Didn't really like it. Didn't care for it, maybe. This is what this means. It means that the events that have transpired, all of these people from this place in Nineveh, they're turning to the Lord. It's as if that was evil to Jonah. Now, I want you to think about this. You've got the most violent group of people you can possibly imagine, and likely more than we could imagine, actually committing acts of atrocity consistently. Like, can't think of a more human, recognizable, tangible, palpable experience of evil. And they stop all that. They turn away at the word of Yahweh, at the word of God that has come to them. They turn away from those things. And to Jonah, that's evil. Now, what kind of place is Jonah in? He's not just displeased. He's angry. He's frustrated. Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and he says to the Lord... Is this not what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why I went the other way, God. For I knew that you're gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Do you hear Jonah's confession at this point? We've read this story, a number of us, a lot of times, over and over. So you might not be shocked by what's happening here with this confession of Jonah in verse 2 in chapter 4, but think about hearing this for the first time, and if you think about how the Hebrew people would hear these words, they would hear this story, and they would see this narrative, and they're in so many ways watching this movie kind of play in their heads, and they're saying, I don't blame Jonah. I would not have gone to this horrible place where these horrible people are that likely meant horrible things for him. I wouldn't have gone there, and I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have gone to this dangerous, awful place with these people who are bloodthirsty. This city is very much literally built on the blood of the innocent. Why would I go there? That would be pretty healthy motivation to stay away. But what we find here is that that wasn't Jonah's motivation at all. Jonah's motivation was, was not the fear of what could happen to him physically. It's ultimately the fear of what could happen to those people spiritually. Because this is what Jonah confesses. That you're a gracious God. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. The story is not that Jonah didn't want to go because these were terrible people in an awful place. Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't want them to experience the same type and level of love that he experienced from God. The prophet, the one who tells people of who God is, things that, that he is doing, his goodness does not want to profess to these people the very goodness of God. It's no secret 
that, that Jonah has an issue of not just loving Israel as a nation in a nationalistic way more, but he has judged in his heart that these people should not experience the love that he knows God wants to give them. Because ultimately, God is giving himself, his graciousness, his mercy, his abounding, abounding love. So this is what Jonah says. Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I want you to think about the fact that Jonah is cool with rescue. Rescued out of the storm, rescued, in a, in, although albeit strange, rescued by the fish from the storm, from the impending death that is going to be his watery grave. Rescued, and then rescued from the fish out, taken back out onto dry land. Jonah is fine receiving rescue, but Jonah doesn't have any desire to see it happen for others. These are hard words. It's a hard thing to recognize. He wanted mercy. He wanted to experience grace, but he couldn't hope the same for others outside of Israel. He didn't want these for all of the should-nots. The people who should not have should not experience the goodness of God because of what they've done, because of where they've come from, because of ultimately who he believes them to be. So much so that he says that he would rather die. Look into verse 4, and you get a beautiful picture of how compassionate God is and how he longs to teach his people. You ever have somebody... You're just out for an answer, man. <laughs> you just want to know the answer to this thing, and they ask you a question. Those people are infuriating. Do you know those people? Here's my favorite. Um, you ever get in like pretty bad trouble as a kid? Like, a, like you know, adolescent. You're just you're you're making these decisions that are just not wise decisions. And I would encourage you parents in here, as I'm trying to encourage myself, that it's not that you've raised them poorly. There's a prefrontal cortex that's not fully developed. There's a lot of things at play here, all right? So don't beat yourself up. But think about it. I mean, a teenager, you make, you, make, you make poor decisions. And I remember conversations where I, that I would have and that my friends had with their parents where it was like, you know, you just wanted to be told, like, what to do. Just like, give me the go to, go to your room, we'll talk about it tomorrow, that kind of stuff, right? You know what the worst thing in the world to hear is? I want you to go think about this. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to go to the place where I have to think about the bad thing. Just tell me what my punishment is and let's move on. Let's just get beyond this. Because going to think about it leads to this extreme place of, oh man, you come to the depth, you recognize the gravity of what's happened in some of these things. God's parenting Jonah in, in, in a way in this moment. He's ultimately fathering him to see 
the brokenness that's not just the result of an action, but ultimately is what's inside him. He says, do you do well to be angry? This is God, the parent, God, the father, asking the question, do you do well to be angry? And in so many ways, he's saying, is it good to be bad? Are you happy in your sadness? All of these things are contrast, they're dichotomies, they don't work together. And ultimately, he's saying, are you accomplishing what you long for through this? Jonah's the petulant child in this moment, stomping his foot, red in the face, screaming, give me my passy. That's personal. That's what it's like at my house. (laughs) Truly trying to teach Jonah and help him understand. Because he doesn't even, he he ignores Jonah's question, his his request to die. He doesn't even honor it with a response. God is beginning to help Jonah see and evaluate and understand what lies beneath the things that he says and the things that he does. Because in many ways, that's where it ends with a question. And I say where it ends because if you look into verse 5, there's a really distinct change. If you have your Bible before you, you see this intense conversation with Jonah and God, and then it moves into this, this, this kind of different literary track where it kind of goes back to just sequence of events over and over again, and you get a picture of what Jonah is doing. In many ways, almost every, every commentator, every theologian worth their salt has looked at this and, and kind of compared it with other documents and all these things would say to us very clearly that this is a flashback. So we kind of get the end in 1 through 4, and then in verse 5, we get the picture of what's to come. We know that, or what has already transpired, rather. We know that because in verse 5, he talks about going to overlook the city to see what would happen. Now, remember when Jonah went to preach, the message was simple. 40 days and Nineveh would be overturned. Now, we see that what happened was there was this incredible transformation in something like three days. Where there's there's almost an immediate turn to, to, to put down their weapons to stop acting the way that they did, to stop living in such violence and such evil. They're, they're turning from the way in which they're living. They're repenting. But Jonah's not sure it's going to stick. He doesn't know what it's going to take. So he's saying, you know what? I'm going to wait out these other 37. Because the prophecy was 40 days and then it will be overturned. I'm going to wait and see what God does. So the picture we're getting now What's happening in this moment is the story of Jonah waiting it out to see what would happen to these people. This is the point where Jonah does not yet know the outcome. And this is what happens. He goes outside of the city, sits east of the city, and he makes a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So this is what's happening. He's waiting to see what will become. And in the meantime, he makes a booth. And if, you're, if you've had some experience reading, um, reading the wilderness stories of God's people, the, the, the deliverance from Egypt, you would know about booths. And booths were these little kind of makeshift, almost, um, almost the equivalent of, of a tent-type scenario, a very temporary shelter 
that God commanded his people to make in Leviticus 23 to help them remember in humility all that he had done for them. So that during seasons of harvest, which they would celebrate during the Feast of Booths, this season of harvest and plenty, they wouldn't just sit in their homes and think to themselves, you know what, we accomplished this. Instead, it was to identify, to remember alongside all of God's people that came before him that God was the one who had us in booths, who had us in temporary shelters, who was taking us in the wilderness, transforming our life, redeeming us from Egypt, all of these incredible things. So Jonah makes one of these things to sit outside of the city. The whole point of the booth was a picture of God's Redemption. Preservation from oppressing. Remember Egypt? Jonah is sitting in the very thing that's supposed to be a picture of God delivering people. And he quite literally can't see the forest for the trees. He does not get it. This festival, the Festival of Booths, is one of joy. It's this huge, joyous, harvest, incredible celebratory time. And Jonah is not joyous. He's sitting in anger. He's sitting in anger over the fact that people have turned from their sin. But then we see what does make Jonah glad. Look into verses 6, 7, and 8. The Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So here's one of the things we find. Apparently, he's not a great booth maker, all right? So the sun is still beating down upon Jonah. God appoints this plant. That's really, really important, and and the Hebrew hearer would recognize this. There's there's a lot of words that we're going to read in four chapters. Their language is much simpler, boils down thoughts into, into very singular, very simple words. And this word used, appointed, is the same word that the hearer, that the reader would know when God appoints the whale to swallow Jonah. When he appoints the fish to to spit up Jonah. It's the same word. It's the same language. You can look back in chapters, end of chapter 1, end of chapter 2. You see all of these things happening. The picture that we're given is that God is not just aware of these moments. Because I think this is where you and I think, and we lend to a lot of times. That God God knows kind of what's happening out here. These things are appointed. God is sovereignly in control of these stories, the sequences of events, the things that are happening, these moments, God is authoring them. And he's doing so to teach Jonah something incredibly important that he seemingly fails to see. It says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Look at where God is taking Jonah. We can see it. He's exceedingly angry that people have turned away from their sin. And he's exceedingly glad that he has shade. Think about this. This is not just ambivalence toward the world. This is not just him saying, like, 
I don't really care what happens either way as long as I'm shaded. I want to be shaded, and I want you to die. Not likely to win friends and influence people. (laughs) This is where Jonah is. And I don't want to admit this. It's not fun to confess this or to say this out loud, but I think that's where I am too quite often. I think that that's where you are too quite often. We're happy to sit in the shade, to sit in the cool of our homes, and to scroll through our phones and judge all the evil people that we know. To look at this website that produces up-to-the-minute news about all the people that aren't as righteous as us. About all the people who don't have it figured out. About all the people who are voting for the wrong guy. About all the people who live such lives of hate. Something to think about. Jonah is in the situation where God is seeking to teach him. God is appointing all of these things. And he closes with these series of questions to teach Jonah. In verse 8, after the plant has withered, the sun is beating down on him. Jonah again says that he, he can't live. He just don't want to be here anymore. That's what he says. God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? For the plant? And what's Jonah going to say? He's already committed to the argument now. He's in this far, so he's just going to keep with it. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, and look at how he describes it. He says, you didn't labor for this. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. This is miraculous. Should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is what the Lord is saying to Jonah. This thing that in so many ways serves a simple purpose but is very trivial. That matters to you more than people. And Jonah can't come to terms with the fact that, quite frankly, that these people matter. Jonah thinks that people matter. It's just that his view is so limited that only some people matter. And once again, for I think the fourth time in the book of Jonah, we get this picture of Nineveh being described as the great city. This time, not just from the the, the writer's perspective, but ultimately God, from his mouth, is calling Nineveh that great city. And that word great, what it means in that moment, is not 
geographically large. It's not just numerically large. Even though there are 120,000 people there, that's not the thing that makes it great. It's not great because it's one of the three royal cities of Assyria during this time in the empire. That's not it. What makes it great is that there are people there. These people are important. You know what great means? It means important. This city is important to God because the people that comprise it are important to him. So God's trying to knock on Jonah's heart with this and say, don't you understand that these are people? He wants to be gracious and merciful. He's been slow to anger. This compassionate God radically pursuing these people who Jonah and, quite frankly, the rest of Israel probably thinks God has no business chasing after. These are not the has-beens. These are the never was and never will be. You want to talk about the weakest, the vilest, the poor in spiritual terms? That's who Nineveh is. And God has pursued them to this end. Through a prophet, through a storm, through a great fish, through the most powerful sermon ever preached. And now God is even still chasing after pursuing the heart of the prophet who does not think that they matter. They are important to God. This is what he says about them, that they don't know their right hand from their left. Now, if Jonah... Is about the, the character and the compassion of God. If we see that he's, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, one thing that we know is that this is not an insult. God is not, is not seeking to be demeaning to the people of Assyria, to the people of Nineveh, by saying they don't know their right hand from their left. Here's what's really happening. It's really showing his heart of compassion. Because these are people that are essentially trapped in their trouble. People who are without escape without hope because of the life that they've lived, the blood guilt that they've experienced. And yet God sees them and says, I want to go to them that they could turn from this ignorance and experience my love and have the opportunity to repent. And then finally, the cattle. This is the end to which God loves people, and it's really practical. God loves us in, the, in these deeply mystical, incredible. God's loving us in a billion ways right now. We can't even see all the ways he's caring for us. Literally sustains us. But God's saying, Jonah, look, I realize that these animals are part of a person's economy. They're how this family lives. They're how these people live. The old world, like in antiquity, this was, like, if you had cattle, this, was, this determined your worth, like your physical preservation. And God says, I'm so merciful, I'm so compassionate, that down to the very end, I want to protect everything that would sustain them so they could hear the very word of life.
So here's the thing. Jonah's the worst. I mean, you don't read this and look at this guy and think, you know what? I don't think we have any kids named Jonah in here, do we? Um, look, I'm kidding, but seriously, this is, this is rough. Look at his character. Look at who he is. This is the prophet. This is the one who's supposed to speak and bring the very word of God. I look at Jonah and, and I think it's really easy for me to, and for you, for all of us, to go to the gospel place of the publican and to say, Lord, I'm thankful you didn't make me like that sinner over there. I'm thankful that you didn't make me like that wretched sinner. And instead, all the while, the Lord is delighting in those wretched sinners who are saying, Lord, have mercy on me. That's who we ought to be. That's what God's calling us to. This whole story is a picture of the pursuit of God, the love of God, the character of God, this steadfast, abounding love that is without end, that pursues to the end beyond what Jonah could ever do. Jesus said that there is one greater than Jonah, and it's him. And Jesus is the embodiment, fully, of bringing us to the place where we hear the very word of God, where we hear, where we experience the truth of what God has come to do, and then we're shown through his life and his death and his resurrection, this good news in its fullness. The gospel is here. It's good news for people who deserve bad things. And that's me, truly. And I love you, but it's you too. We're sinners in need of mercy and in need of grace. All of it comes through Jesus. And all that Jonah does is point us to one who will come. The fullness of time. Jesus being gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And here's the thing about that. It's I, man, I think we just want, to, we want an identity for ourselves, you guys. And my fear is that, that, that if, if you're as loved as I am, or you're as well-known as I am, or you're as the, or if I don't stand out, if I'm not apart from you, if I'm not different from you in some sort of way, then how can I ever measure up? You know the quickest way to measure up? Put somebody down. And we do it, and we all do it. And look, you're believers. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. You're redeemed people. I know this, and here's the reality. You do it. You're trying to carve out this identity in this world in which we live. We're about, kids are about to start school together, right? There's going to be people vying to try to 
live through their children's sports and their education and their scholastics and all these types of things. We're going to live and die on Saturdays with these teams that we love. And if you're like me, you love mine, then you just die. Just every week you just die. And you just come to accept it. And you watch people like, you got people out here, their team just lives every single week. And it's so annoying. And you wonder, God, are you going to do anything about this? <laughs> I know you love us. I'm the one that's not slow to anger. Um, but look, and there's, we're trying, you're trying to vie for an identity in this life. You know what happens when other people get as much as you. You know what you lose? Nothing. More so, look at the gospel. Do you know what? If I give Jesus away, if I share the good news with somebody who is different from me, who is in every single way the antithesis of what I am, and so therefore I've made them my enemy because they're not like me. They don't have my experience. They don't have my background. They don't look like me, talk like me. That's probably a benefit. I think, I think we think that here's the thing. I'm going to lose something. You share Jesus, you don't lose him. You don't lose anything. You know what's wild? Man, if we have compassion on, pe- compassion on people that are different than us, we gain. You know what we gain? Brothers and sisters. You know what else we gain? A perspective of a God. We get to watch people be transformed and we get to see the story of redemption all over again. And then we get to remember that that happened to us. That that happened to us. And I want to be very, very clear that I'm not preaching to a room that can affect the demographic makeup of where we are. This is not, this is not a sermon that says, look, God's people, everybody got to be real, real, real different or this is wrong. You're not doing it right. That's not what we're saying here. But Jonah is the story that gives us cautious warning to help understand that we're called to love everyone, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, so that we get to celebrate with every tongue and every tribe and every nation at the glory of God. So can we be people this week that leave this place saying, man, I want to have the compassion that's been given to me. And how's that compassion come to me? This is how it's come to me. Christ's body was broken for me. Christ's blood was shed for me. This morning, as our worship team comes, we have deacons and elders that come, and we get the opportunity to come to this table and receive much more than Jonah, Israel, Nineveh, or any group of people has ever deserved. We all bring the same thing to the table, and it's just our sin. It's just our brokenness. The beautiful good news of the gospel is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For all of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we're from. And we get the opportunity today to taste and see of God's goodness in this meal And to let it thrust us out into the world where we can go love our neighbor and tell them how much God loves them too. So let's do that this morning. Let's come to this recognition, come to this table rather, in recognition of all that Christ has done for us. To partake this in a joyous way. And as you're doing it, look around, look around at the people in this place. 
This is the heart of God that, that God loves all. He longs for all to come to saving knowledge of him. And this is an opportunity to be fed this morning spiritually and to ask God to transform us as he feeds us spiritually into people who could go living from that energy spiritually and loving our neighbors around us. All because of what he's done for us and we can't help but share it with them no matter who they are. I'd love for you to stand uh, this morning as we come to a place. Come to this meal. Come to this table. This table is for all people who have trusted in Christ, who are believers in Jesus. If you've yielded your life to Jesus, if you've trusted in him, please come to this table and die. You don't have to be a member here to do that. But if you have not trusted in Jesus, I would ask you truly to refrain from coming to this table and instead believe in Jesus. To trust in the finished work of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection for you. To confess your sins and to follow him. That would be my charge to you. This morning, let us approach this table with gladness, with excitement, with joy. For the God who loves us and pursues us so radically that he can do not only that for us, but for all. Pray with me and let's come and eat. Heavenly Father, I pray that this meal would allow us to taste and see of your goodness. Draw us into the reality of your deep love for us this morning. In Christ's name.